Friends, what caught your attention in this past week? What caught your attention in this past week? If you follow science history issues, perhaps you noted that John Glenn died. And that caught your attention. You Maybe you read a little bit about it or you caught some news article on it. How many of you, like me, can remember being in grade school when he when he went around the earth? Yeah, yeah, a number of us can. And I can remember the wonder, the teacher coming in with what, what a sense of wonder as she was describing what was happening with this guy by the name of John Glenn. And I got to tell you, I can't remember many guys who were in the news at that stage in my life, but there's a name we all still know don't we? What I didn't know in learning about John Glenn was after he had made that orbit, he became a national hero and they wouldn't let him go back into space because it was so dangerous and he was such a hero that they wanted now to protect his life. And so they wouldn't send him back up. Years later, he went back up after we had a more developed program. But did something like that, the science and history of what John Glenn represented, did that perhaps catch your attention? Maybe the world of politics. I was determined that I was going to turn off politics after the election. It's like I'd had enough. But I found there's a few things that have intrigued me and kept me listening. I mean, how can you not be intrigued when the Secretary of Defense is a guy by the name of James Mad Dog Mattis? Okay, well, what's that about? I learned something relative to that this week also. I learned that it, it Apparently, the people in Washington, they know there are two kinds of generals. There are parade generals, and there are field generals. And we now have a field general as our Secretary of Defense, which apparently we've had a parade general prior to this. Interesting little little dichotomy that I had not heard. Have you been paying attention to sports? Did that catch your attention? Oh, ye basketball players. I know that Russell Westbrook at least has gone seven. Has he gone eight? I don't know. But seven games in a row where he has gotten a triple-double. Now, to get in a triple-double in one night is a good thing. Seven games in a row. He has tied Michael Jordan's record for consecutive triple-doubles. In fact, he's on his season. He's running an average of triple-doubles if you average all those things in over games. He's just putting in an amazing stretch right now. So maybe in the world of sports, that caught your attention. A couple of weeks back, I read an article that a guy effectively said, look, you maybe don't follow a whole lot of college football. There's one game you ought to catch. You ought to catch the Army-Navy game. I read the article thought, you know what? I'm going to try and watch the Army-Navy game. Turns out I spent the entire afternoon uh, needing to be on the road and visiting people, and so I recorded it, made sure I could see it when I came home. And where it picked up, it was amazing to watch. But I'm going to back up to where, it, to where it started, but why I was so amazed. The last thing that I saw prior to the game is flyovers. And here are some Navy aircraft, and then here are some Army aircraft that both did flyovers. There's a guy who came down with a parachute, Navy written on his parachute. That's pretty cool to see that. There was this huge choir singing the Star Spangled Banner. And they were mixed together because it was both the Navy and the Army glee clubs. And they each had their own formal outdoor attire on. And I thought to myself as I watched and the camera pans and they're doing a beautiful rendition of the National Anthem. 
And I see these young people, men and women, who've devoted themselves to the service of our country, black and white and Hispanics. I thought, this is who our nation is. I don't care what people, how they try and devise. This is our nation. We are all of these people. And we're not, I don't believe we're as divided as people try and tell us that we are for their own political gain. But prior to the singing of that is right where the recording picked up. And the game was beginning with a prayer. Some military chaplain offering significant prayer. But not only about the game that they were going to play, but then the chaplain went on to say, effectively, though they, they work against each other on this field of battle here, when their time is done, they will work together on a real field of battle that is far more significant. So God protect them. And I thought to myself, how did we lose this? How is it at public events? We have lost the ability to put the acknowledgement of God into the very presence and understanding of who we are as a nation. As he prayed for these wonderful young men and women who will wear the uniforms of American servicemen. Caught my attention. The writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to catch our attention. He's making every effort for us to, to get what it is that he is talking about. And in chapter 2, we were there a while ago. We read this. You may find it familiar. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And he is saying to his readers, pay attention. You need to understand that there are things that matter. There are things that are significant that we cannot let them just drift before our eyes as we move away from them. And as he has laid that question out, you remember if you were with us, we referred to it as the hanging question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He then goes on to start naming things for us one after another as to how great this salvation truly is. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 that we are able to share in Christ's glory because he was willing to share in our suffering. And then we saw in verses 11 and 13, 11 through 13, Christ's connection to us redemptively has uplifted us relationally and that he is, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And what I want us to see today, as we're going to now look at verses 14 and 15, is this simple truth that the writer to the Hebrews wants to catch our attention with, is this. The Son became God with us. The Son became God with us in order to make Satan, the devil, not with us. The Son became God with us in order to make Satan, the devil, not with us. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The Son became God with us. And as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, the word there is the word to share in common. You know the word in English is fellowship. You know it also if you've been sitting under Bible teachers a long time. It's the word, the root word is koinonia. Okay, sharing things in common. And he says, as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, it is what they shared in common. It is, it is what, who we are. It's part and parcel to our makeup, is it not? In the visitation that I was doing on Saturday, after seeing Lucille for her birthday, I had to run to the hospital because I needed to go see little Will Steiner Schoen. Will Steiner, is that a great name? I just love that name. But I expected something. I expected when I got there, and I'm celebrating with this with this uh, young family. Now, it sounds ridiculous, but it's making a point. I expected, I'm going to see a baby. There's something here that I will see, something which can be held. And as we see, something which could be photographed. There's something there. And that something is flesh and blood. It's what we all share in common. It's how God created us. And as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, they share it in common. He himself likewise shared in the same. Christ then took on flesh and blood also. Now we sang some magnificent Christmas songs this morning that had some incredible lyrics to them. And that's some of the wonderful stuff about Christmas, that if you'll pay attention to the words we're being sung, we're singing eternal truth that is there. But one of the ones that we sang, and I think it might have been in that new song, Josh, I'm not sure, but but it referenced how before he came to earth, he, he always was. <laughs> came to earth, but he'd been there before that. He'd been there prior to that. So how is it that Christ shared in the same? Well, Philippians chapter 2 gives us that magnificent passage where we come to understand the truth of what is happening here. That the second person of the Trinity, the Son, set aside the glory and the honor and the praise and the adoration that He is due and that He received from the time the angels were created. He set that all aside in order to take on flesh and to become a servant to become a servant even unto death. Magnificent. So every time Gloria and I have been listening to one CD at home, and um, every time the song Mary Did You Know, which we sang this morning, comes on, I always say, this is the most incredible song. What an unbelievably beautiful song. 
the questions that it asks of Mary. Did you understand what was happening, Mary, at that point? As Christ took on flesh, became, as Matthew says, Emmanuel, God with us. We don't very often tie this verse in. Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise shared in the same, right? We don't, but that is the Christmas story. That's it in a nutshell, is it not? I read it, uh, I'm in the middle of reading C.S. Lewis's book called Miracles. And I read it years ago. I, I should say my words passed over, my eyes passed over the words years ago. I don't think I ever read it because I feel like I'm, I have never heard this before. And I think I must have read it. One of those things where you could say I read it. Yeah, I read C.S. Lewis's Miracles because I read heavy books, you know. It's like, yeah, right, you didn't read it. Okay, who are you kidding? All right, you're clueless. But he says something I thought was very fascinating about miracles. He says, the way God has created nature and the way things work is that God is able to invade nature from outside of nature. He brings in, he does something where he puts a, the word that goes through my mind, it kind of puts a little ripple into nature and something new is there. And then nature just envelops it and accepts it and keeps moving along. What a magnificent understanding of a miracle. A little ripple in nature that God from outside of nature is able to do. And then nature just envelops it and it just moves along the, the natural path. The reason that I say that is, God, outside of nature, contrary to nature, took by the power of the Holy Spirit, came upon Mary, this little ripple, and now there's a baby that is taking shape in her womb without the benefit of a man because God supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came upon her, that little ripple, and now that baby is going to just move along in the natural stream of things. Fantastic story of Christmas. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He took on this flesh and blood that we have. What? That through death, through death. What do we have there? We're not talking about Easter, aren't we? Everything, you know, and I know you guys have thought this as mature believe you thought this. Christmas and Easter are inexorably linked, aren't they? It's all part of the one same story. Because without Christmas, we don't have Easter. He could not, through death, he could not do what we're being told here, that he might destroy him who had the power of death. As we think about that one who has the power of death, one of those phrases that you just kind of mull over and you go, what exactly does that mean that he had the power of death? He does not have absolute control over the issue of death because he cannot bring his, his inflicting hand upon anyone without God sovereignly allowing it. So it's not like he has absolute control over a question of death. But he is powerful enough that if God gives him the freedom, he could take any one of us out. So what is this power of death that he has? John 10.10, 10, I think perhaps shares a little bit of light on this. John 10.10, 10, which is probably up on the screen before I can turn to it, right? Yeah. 
The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Who's the thief? The thief is the serpent. It's Satan. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And we have the contrast between these two elements. This contrast. Satan is all about killing, stealing, and destroying. That's his realm. That's his modus operandi, if you will. That's how he operates. That's how he functions. That's all he's got. Whereas in God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, life and fullness and blessing and joy occur. So that's the contrast. Kingdom of darkness, kill, steal, and destroy. Kingdom of light, life, and that in abundance. So when he says that he has the power of death, I would understand that to mean simply this. That's his whole realm. His whole realm is about death. When he entices us to sin, wages of sin is death. And then he makes us feel guilty over the sin. Makes us understand that, you know what, you're just the worst person in the world. There's nobody, there's no hope for you. You're absolutely helpless. I thought it was very intriguing in, um, for, forgive me, Darlene, I hope this does not create a problem for you. I don't mean that too. But in John's song about the harbor lights, there's one line in John's song about the harbor lights where he, he sensed the evil one telling him to take your own life. Take your own life. Okay. Wow, I read that. That was, that's a powerful line. But this is the realm in which the evil one works. The evil one works in the realm of death. Get us to sin. That, that's, it's death in itself. The wages of sin is death. Separates us from God. Breaks down our sense of who we are. Breaks down our relationships. Kills our relationships with those around us. Then he takes that guilt and he pours it on us. Says, see, you're the worst thing. Nobody could ever love you. And he throws that upon us. And ultimately his desire, given a chance, is to kill us. And whether by our own hands... Or as he would if he were given permission. Why? Because he's trying to run a kingdom of darkness. And all that he is about is killing, stealing, destroying. There's no life in him. And that's how he operates. But the scripture says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. How did he do it through death? Jesus himself experienced death upon our on our behalf, right? That's why he went to the cross. Again, now we're talking Easter, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through death, he was able to destroy him who had the power of death. This kingdom, the way in which the evil one works, where it's always about just ugly, destructive things, says put an end to that. Now, the word destroy, we have to understand that word as, as far as what it means here in particular. Doesn't mean that he annihilated Satan as a person. Doesn't mean that he ceased, that he caused his existence to just go away. It wasn't that kind of destruction. The word has at its, in its very meaning, is the idea to hinder, to put an end to, put a stop to, invalidate. I think the word that I like the most that explains what it means to destroy the power of Satan it means to cause to be idle. So that here Satan's doing all of this stuff. He's doing everything he can. And once Christ destroys him, all of this stuff he does has no more significance. It's like he pushes him off to the side. Go do what you will. But that has no significance here now. Because Christ has borne death, which is his realm. Christ has borne death on our behalf. And now whatever you're doing has no more meaning 
for those who have been redeemed and have been set free. Cause to be idle. <laughs> Insignificant. So the way I like to think about it, but you got to go with me, okay? Are we all thinking? Because I don't want anybody to get mad at what I, you, you misunderstanding me. But when I read that, I thought, you know what? The way I like to look at it is that Jesus idolized Satan. I-D-L-E dash I-Z-E-D. Let's make sure we have the spelling correct. He just idolized him. He just took him, set him aside, said, you have nothing more to do, do you? There's no impact that you have. There's no value in whatever you try and do now. Why? Because he has borne the death with which Satan would try and hold over our head. He has borne it in our place. So he took on flesh in order to be like us so that he could face death in our place. And Satan's power now has been idolized. It has no effect on us. Is that incredible truth, friends? I find that to be amazing stuff. So he destroyed his power. He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Makes it clear who we're talking about. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He destroyed his power and he delivered his people. Now, if you're following the notes, I want to make a particular point here. Because you look at your notes carefully. Do not think that Brenda made a typographical error. I made it clear in sending her this, this, this outline. said, Brenda, make sure you don't change anything here. He destroyed his power, H, small h in his. His being Satan's power. He idolized him. Okay? Cause put a hinder to his, Satan's power. But he delivered his, that is capital H, his own people. Remember the ones who he's not ashamed to call brothers? Remember those many sons that he's bringing to glory? That's just up in a few verses earlier. These are his, capital H, people. They belong to him. Those who were, notice how we are described, those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The idea of the word subject is this. We were guilty and deserving of a penalty. See, that's how Satan could rule over us. Because we knew we were sinners. We knew we had fallen short. We knew we had a problem. And he just uses that to constantly stir the mix over us. And constantly keep us defeated. And constantly in that, in the darkness of our sin, just continue to bring chaos and confusion and nonsense into our lives so that he could continue to kill, steal, and destroy. Because we're aware of our brokenness. We're aware of our sinfulness. And we're aware that as guilty people, we deserve a penalty. And that empowered him to constantly raise that over us. But Jesus came in, paid the penalty, and now he's been idolized. Right? And we have been delivered. We've been set free from this bondage that has been over us. And friends, I just got to tell you from personal experience. If you live in a world where you know you're guilty of sin, you know you're guilty before God, but you have no idea how to escape from that, it is bondage. It is absolute bondage. And I will never go back to that. I never want to live under that bondage again of that incredible guilt 
of always knowing, yes, I am guilty, and God has his heavy hand upon me, and then Christ comes into my experience, and Christ saves me, and Christ begins to reveal himself to me, and I begin to understand that he has set me free by what he has done, not anything I did, and he's not ashamed to call me his brother. And then freedom begins to be part of who we are. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. You got that first, Paul? I'm not going to bother trying to look. I'm too slow. I also say to you that you are Peter. And this is, we're talking about Peter's profession, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on this rock, that's the profession. I will build my church. And catch this next phrase. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Do you understand we were in bondage? Do you understand we were enslaved? Do you understand that we were in Satan's kingdom? And it's like he's got these gates around us and we're caught in there and he constantly stirs this issue of our guilt and the condemnation condemnation that we are truly due. And he uses that against us, uses that against us. And we're, un, and we're in bondage to this thing until Jesus Christ comes along and he pays the penalty. He dies in our place. He takes on flesh. He dies in our place. The penalty is paid. And now he comes crashing through those gates. And he says, these are mine. And he calls us out as his brothers. And we are no longer in the bondage that Satan has held us to. I said at the outset, The writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to get our attention. Trying to get us to understand that this gospel that we talk about, that this good news that we proclaim, that this Savior who alone is the hope of mankind is something exceptional, something incredible, and something worth paying attention to. Paying attention to in such a way that we're locked on We don't drift by it. That we're locked on and we never come to the place where we don't, we don't consider its value, its significance. That's what the idea of the word neglect means, is to hold with no significance. And we see it and we understand what he has done and and what he is doing in bringing many sons to freedom. Which just leads me to our closing question, friend. If that doesn't get our attention, understanding what Christ has done on our behalf to set us free, so that he became God with us, so that Satan will be the devil not with us, so that whatever the devil tries now is completely of inconsequence. He has idolized him such... You know, you got nothing to do because these are my, these are my children. These are the ones the Father has given me. I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers because I've suffered death on their behalf and you can't hold that over their heads anymore. Friends, here's a question. If this doesn't get our attention, what will? If we hear all that Jesus Christ has done and we go, What will it take to get us to say, you know, maybe there's something here I ought to pay attention to.
Are our hearts that stony, if you will? Are they that hard? Because I promise us, friends, I speak this to each of us and to myself included, right? That if my heart hears this truth and just goes, not interested, the problem is in my heart. It's not in the truth. The truth is unbelievably incredible when you take some time to think about the Creator God of the universe exists in three persons. The second person came down, shared in flesh with us so that He could die in our place so that the offenses we have created to the, to the eternal God for which He is able and righteously will judge us He has borne that judgment upon Himself so that we can be set free. So that this evil one who constantly tries to rule over us and keep us enslaved no longer has any influence. The problem is not in the Gospel, friends. The problem is in hearts that are hard. And so I have a question. A follow-up question, if this doesn't get our attention, what will? And that is today. If we hear this truth and we just go, don't care. May I suggest, may I beg with you, may I plead with you. With each of us, that we ask God to change such a cold, hardened heart that we can't even have life-giving truth penetrate to change us and excite us and transform us. Some work needs to be done internally. We know how God is speaking to us as this word has been proclaimed. I can't say for anyone here, but there is no greater truth this world has ever known, has ever encountered, has ever heard, has ever seen than this reality. That God took on flesh to become Emmanuel, God with us. In order to destroy the works of the devil, that he would be Satan not with us, separated from us. Idolized. A lot of things caught my attention in the news this week. None of them come close to what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to get, to utilize and to get us to see, to catch our attention. Father, we all need to work in our heart, Lord. We all have places where we're still hard. We're still resistant to the truth of your word penetrating. We still just kind of take your truth and we just, we just, we place no value in it, Lord. And we all need a continuing sanctifying work of your spirit. So I would ask, Lord, that, that you would send your spirit into our midst today to cause each of us to be honest with the truth that is here and how we are responding to it, Lord, whether we're open to the truth of letting you truly do a transforming work in us or whether or not we're just content to allow the evil one to continue to rule over us. 
We need you, gracious Lord, to change us, to soften our stony hearts. Please do that work even now in Jesus' name.